I'm gonna trick former guest Ben into making us theme song. That's it. Okay. Better, closer, warmer. Uh, all modern art is communistic. I want to be the first man to nut in space. Fuck you. Fuck off. Where are we finding it? Why can't we Better, find it? Closer, Why do you guys warmer. keep saying all this change? We're playing Fortnite. Let's have fun. We need to get to that post-World War II mentality where Better, closer, no one in the warmer. world is going to Twitch and typing in climate first. Don't tweet us about how our stuff's inaccurate. At this point, I don't think the N-word tape would change anything. The piss tape might. From New Orleans to New York. It's the Alienos Podcast, baby. Dude, that was TNT. Welcome to the Alienos Podcast. Uh, I'm Smith. I'm Seth. And it's the voice that makes you moist, Marcus. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus, for your yeah. normal, regular introduction that you always do <laughs> <laughs> on this great episode. Hey, no problem, yeah. man. Easily our biggest episode yet. Thank you. Oh yes, <laughs> don't break any traditions. <laughs> we uh, we actually have a guest with us uh, this week. We've uh, brought in uh, a ringer uh, for an interview here. Um, that would be. Do you want to introduce yourself to us? Absolutely. My name is Jessica Scarane, and I am running for U.S. Senate in the Democratic primary in the state of Delaware. Hell yeah! <laughs> All right. Yeah, we uh, we can't believe that a real person wanted to talk to us about, uh, well, anything, yeah. really, but especially as important as a senator race. Yeah, normally when we have a guest, it's like your buddy or your cousin or something, but we have like a real person, and it's crazy. No, you guys are legit, so here I am. Hey, Hell yeah. appreciate it. This is our big break, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to do it together. It's going to be wonderful. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we, we wanted to bring you on to talk about your Senate race because we are trying to, to get interviews with people uh, who are, uh, you know, closer to our politics than the average, you know, Democrat would probably be. And from what we've seen, you, you pretty much fall into that category, I think. Um, I think a question that I, I kind of had for you just to start things off a little bit is what sort of got you to, to run? What was your inspiration? Yeah. So I live in Wilmington, Delaware. I lived here for about 10 years. And when I look at my city and my state, I see a lot of people who are struggling to get by. I see a lot of people who can't afford to go to the doctor, who struggle to keep a roof over their heads, who don't get good educations. And when I kept looking at all these issues, there's obviously some systemic cause to it, right? And what I believe that is, is a broken power structure in our country. It exists to protect the already wealthy and the already powerful, and it just abuses the rest of us. So I got into this race because our current senator is committed to upholding that system. It works for him and it works for his buddies, but it doesn't work for the rest of us. And I am running because I believe that we deserve a government that actually works for all of us and provides a dignified standard of living to every single person in this country. Wow. Could not have said it better myself. Yeah. It's simple, honestly. Yeah, I agree. As I I say all the time there, I believe there shouldn't be a cost associated with just being alive and trying to stay around. And that's pretty much what you're preaching right now, which is incredible. And I've tried to work like in the existing system, right? Like I've done the things that I'm supposed to do. I volunteered. I, I really care deeply about education. My mom is a reading and a speech teacher. 
And it has always been something that's been important to me and my family. So when I moved to Delaware, I started tutoring and mentoring at a community center here in Wilmington. I tutored third graders in reading because that was like, again, dear, near and dear to my heart. I try, I'm trying to improve education that way. I got involved with a nonprofit that fought for pro, or provided programming for girls that would in, inspire them to be strong, smart, and bold, a, a organization called Girls Inc. of Delaware. And our job was to not only provide that programming, but also advocate for laws that protected girls, protected women. I fundraised for candidates and causes and issues that I believed in and, and volunteered for those things. But like all of that is still working within this broken system, right? Like, so ultimately that's not enough to truly change it. And now I'm trying to get to the point where I can affect that change that needs to happen to bring about a country that actually works for us. Yeah, yeah. I feel that way a lot about almost anything you try and do. It's like, yeah, no matter how much progress you make, you're still working within capitalism. You're still supporting these systems and it's just really hard to break free and doing something like running from senate is a good way to do it yeah <laughs> we need more people in positions of power both inside and outside our government that believe the things we believe yeah dual power exactly and like i think right now we see so many we have a lot of great organizers and activists in our state on the ground here but if they're going to keep banging their head against the same you know powers that be like they're only going to get so far. We're only going to be able to make these individual impacts that I'm so proud to have made at those nonprofits. But I'm at the point where those nonprofits shouldn't have to exist. Like all of those organizations exist because of gaps in the system that our government fails to fill. And <laughs> one of the things that just particularly infuriated me when I was on the board of one of those nonprofits was that a few years ago, there was a budget gap in our um, state budget we have democratic leadership, we have democratic government, democratic house, senate. And one of the ways they wanted to fill that budget gap was by cutting funding to what's called grant and aid, which is money that goes to nonprofits. They wanted to cut funding to public schools and they wanted to cut funding to social services. So no matter what, it's like what little bit you have in this system is still so fragile. You have to constantly be fighting for it. And it really doesn't matter who's in office if they're all answering to the same powers that be and if they're constantly deciding to um, legislate in a way that is at the expense of the most vulnerable people in our state and in our country. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Wow. Frick. I definitely yeah. agree. It, it, it makes things hard to make progress when you have to continually worry about what the people who are already entrenched in power think yeah. and trying to appeal to them means you have to like compromise and work with them and, and it doesn't really get us what we need really in the end. So yeah. I, I, I agree. And we're, we're pretty much at that point where we there's, there's no more time for compromise. No. Like compromise has been happening for since the beginning of our country and it's the time where we just need to push these policies and we can't bend because people because the democrats they bend and bend and bend until they break and they, they they give up so much ground and we need people in office who are going to fight for that ground because we need it every day yeah and that's i mean that's specifically what i'm running against i don't know how much you know about um the delaware senator i'm running against senator coons but he is um literally labeled the gop's favorite democrat he values bipartisanship to what i believe is a fault he will not um, co-sponsor a bill unless there's a Republican co-sponsor on it. And what the way he works is to celebrate that bipartisanship. And 
the problem is that bipartisanship is not an end goal. It doesn't yeah. matter mm -hmm. if what you did is bipartisan, if it still screwed over the vast majority of the people in your state or your country. So I don't want to see you compromising if it screws all of us. What I want you to see is standing up for the things that you say you believe in and fighting for them. So bipartisanship is a tactic. It can't be the thing that you're proud of. And, and one of the ways he did this explicitly was, uh, well, now two years ago, during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. You know, he and Jeff Flake teamed up to get this FBI investigation for a week. And they're so proud. We got this bipartisan agreement to get this FBI in investigation. Him and Jeff Flake went off on TV. They're talking about how great it is that they can get along and that, you know, bipartisanship isn't dead. Well, the FBI did literally nothing. And they come back a week later. And now because the FBI did nothing, all the Republicans are now they have the votes. Now they're comfortable voting yes. So what did that get you for all these years that you've been then sitting in that seat, compromising? What do you have to show for it that's made our lives better? And frankly, when have they ever come to your side? Because I have never seen it. It's always the, the Democrats moving to the center, moving to the right. They never look to their left to compromise and find someone maybe a little more progressive than them to get something done. And instead they sit in this, they try to sit in this center place failing to realize that center is not a fixed point if you have no force on the other side. And as the exactly. Republicans have moved further and further to the right, if you want to hold center or middle, like you're going to look up one day and you're going to be, you know, the Republicans of the 1980s, which is what I would argue we have. Yeah, nothing infuriates me more than someone who goes, "Well, what did this person get done? What did you? What did you get done? I want someone to get to get something done in office." And then you're they, they point to people who are like like Chris Coons who compromise and say, "We get stuff done." I don't care that you got something done. What did you get done? Right. What did it do for us? Like the the, the it can't just be like, "Oh, you racked up a bunch of co-sponsors. Oh, you racked up a bunch of bills getting out of committee." It literally doesn't matter if the like that's the wrong metric. What we should be saying is like, how many lives have you made better? Like, how many lives have you saved? How yeah. many people have you lifted out of poverty? Like, we're, these are the questions we should actually be asking and measuring the the uh, skill and expertise on. It's not how many friends do you have in the Senate. It's not how many things you get invited to. It's, it's really what difference did you make for people? Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of saving lives, about an hour ago, I walked uh, through my house and I have it on CNN and I saw Chris Coons on CNN. Oh, um, he's always there. Giving an interview <laughs> um, about the situation in Iran. And he was he was saying, oh, the administration doesn't have a plan. They don't know what they're going to do. Uh, they, the, this guy, he was a bad guy, but we have to have a plan. And I just call it to think was, you're really missing the point. That's not the problem. Absolutely. Yeah, that was his take. We, I need the president to tell me what the strategy is for responding. And it's like, you, what are you talking about? You're upset that he hasn't gone through the right channels, that he hasn't filled out the proper paperwork, not upset that he's brought us to the brink of another war, that he's endangered millions of lives. You just want to know what his next step is and what his strategy is? Like, no. You should be up in arms and appalled. That's like, I've seen his statements. His statements on war are, are troubling, I'll tell you. Because even back this fall, when Iran um, did a strike against those Saudi oil fields, irrelevant to us. What does it matter to us? But no, he's out on Fox News and CNN and everywhere else saying that if this is proved to be Iran, this could be reason for us to strike them. Why? For oil interests? Like, 
why are you such a war hawk? <laughs> because you know what? It's not going to be your kids that are fighting that war. Like you exactly. are not, it's not going to hurt you. If anything, your wealth will only increase. But yeah, he his, has his no response was the- subjecting working class people to a war. Oh, absolutely. And his response had no difference really from Lindsey Graham or someone like that. No, absolutely not. You can't, if you took a name off of it or, and just read the transcript, you would have no idea who it came from. You would assume it was all these people that get labeled war hawks and that, you know, a Democrat would say that they wouldn't vote for. And yet here we are with this person calling themselves a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we all know uh, Donald Trump has no plans at all yeah, for anything. Like, exactly. Yeah. What are you even asking? You're like, oh, he needs to tell me what his strategy is. Like, he doesn't have a strategy. Like, yeah. When I want to look for a strategy, I go to Donald Trump. I'm like, this, <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing. What you're really asking for is what? Like Mike Pompeo to lie to you? Like, I, what are you actually, yeah. like, what do you think you're going to get from this administration that has like more empty seats than it does people actually doing the work we need them to? Wow. Yeah, I don't think any idea I'd hear from Mike Pompeo would be good, yeah. so I'm not interested in that. <laughs> I don't really want him telling me what his strategy is. What I want is someone who's going to stand up and say, we absolutely are against starting yet another war, which is the only like acceptable stance. That's it. We shouldn't even yeah. be there in the first place. Yeah. And, and we committed an assassination. Like, And then, mm-hmm. of course, we always start, you know, like, our concept of history like starts like when we're attacked like it's like oh, okay uh our embassy was attacked and it's like okay what happened before that though like yes we, like <laughs> you know like that that, that yeah. wasn't that wasn't point zero i can assure you like but you know people say like well you know Soleimani was a bad guy and you're like okay like there's this isn't black and white this isn't cops and robbers in our backyard like there's not good guys and bad guys in this. And I can assure you that our history doesn't show that we've been, you know, squeaky clean good guys here. So I don't really care about what Donald Trump's strategy is for a response. I solely care about standing against going to war with anyone else and against perpetuating and continuing the wars that we're currently in. That's it. And I, I think that your opinion is the one that most Americans probably share. Right. Because most Americans have a brother, a cousin, a sister, or whatever, who's enlisted and was maybe deployed and has been through this because it's been half my lifetime. So I've had friends that have been deployed. I, they, like These things have hit people at home. And they don't want to continue to see their friends and family sent off to fight a war that they don't even understand. It's a complete racket. It's a war that continues to enrich the already wealthy and chews up the lives of everybody else. Absolutely. Uh, War these days, the military industrial complex really serves to put people of lower economic status into these dangerous positions and then just feed the people who are already at the top. Exactly. And it's never, there's no, like, we're never going to end it. There's no, like, actual, like, there's nothing that we can do that's like okay we did it you know like because you go in with no plan anyway it's these strikes and rolling troops out but there's no real mission here and there shouldn't be because we shouldn't be there in the first place and the reason there's no real mission is because it solely exists to protect capital and capitalistic interests rather than actually 
like we'll say we're trying to, you know, we were in a, we were in Iraq to bring them freedom, right? Like that is not why we were there. That is a lie. And we're hearing those same exact lies from the same exact people about this, this altercation with Iran. Yeah. I was watching CNN again and I saw Judith Miller and I was like, are you back? I thought you were dead. It's like they come out of the woodwork. Here's like, Oh, Carl Rove. Oh, Ari Fleischer. Like, how is the same fucking people from when I was, whatever, 20 years old getting trotted out on television to tell me why we need to go to war again? And, like, have we learned literally nothing? Like, that's all I look at. It's just, like, we we are carrying water for an administration that we have said is invalid. We've impeached this president, and yet we're funding the ability for him to take us into a war. I believe that Chris Coons voted for that, didn't he? Oh, yeah. It was like $700 billion more dollars for military stuff? Billion Absolutely. more dollars. Yes. $700 billion. You know what you could have for that? Like, you could, <laughs> yeah. you could, have, free, you could have free pre-K and college for every, every kid in the country. Yeah, every American. You can <clears> have <throat> health care, social services. I mean, yeah. who knows what else? What, something way more valuable than having a, a large military. Yeah. And we're just voting to increase every year, and no one ever questions it. No one ever says where it's com- where is it asks where it's coming from. It's it, it it's going to take a concerted effort from both people on the ground, raising their voices and saying we do not want this and we oppose this in large numbers, and it's going to take having elected leaders who recognize that this is no way to conduct a country. <laughs> like it's just we can't. We need to take care of our actual people in our country and use our wealth for that rather than using our wealth to continue to try to maintain an, an empire and colonize other countries yeah i couldn't agree more because there's no end to it this is the problem i mean christians yeah. have made, made comments about like needing to beat china to africa <laughs> and you're like for what so we can mine more like we need to mine their resources before China does. We need to make sure that we feed them into our machine before China does. Okay, so then you do Africa. Where do you go next? Like, it, it's just like, there's never going to be an end point until yeah. you say, like, this is not how we operate anymore. And until you truly change the, the, the I don't know, mentality, really, of the country, that's the only way it's going to end. And it's like you said earlier that Americans have we've been we've been basically drilled to have no concept of history. When yeah. when Chris Coons talks about like beating China to Africa, does he even know the the historical context of our relationship with Africa in the past? Does he like? I mean, he'll only thing you, to say. He tell you he'll tell you he does. He'll tell you about how you know studying abroad in Kenya when he was in his twenties is what changed him oh. from a Republican to a Democrat. Like oh, wow, you know, like, wow. But again, it's always through this imperialist lens. So I don't need that version of history. <laughs> no, not at exactly. all. Um, but yeah, so to keep this maybe on for, for now, a little bit of a global scale with talking about Iran, um, there's also stuff going on in Australia. Australia is like burning to the ground. Um, so yeah, it was just a, what, do you think, like, what do you think is the best plan of action? Like if, if America was to take the, the right plan of action to help out Australia, what, what, how do you think we should go about that? I think the biggest focus has to be on how are we getting to zero emissions? Yes. I mean, I recognize that Australia is in a moment of crisis. I think it's good that we are trying to support them 
through that. We absolutely have to do that, but it can't just be like, how do we end these fires in this moment? It has to be, how do we stop this from happening and getting worse in the yes. future? Kill mm-hmm. commuter culture. Um, I mean, there's so many cars. On the, I mean, you look outside, just, just when you're driving, there's like 100, 200, 300 cars on the road with you, and that's just in your section of the world. And then you can see. Yeah. And there's so much gas being used, so much being burned. It's it's honestly crazy when you think about the scale of these natural resources we use on an hourly basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like I saw a graphic recently that was like all the methods that you could use to get somewhere and like the scale of like from worst to, to best for, with in terms of emissions. And like cars, like our, our personal gas burning car is only like slightly worse than like a jet. Like, oh, wow. it's so bad. Like, it's just that bad. Like, it's basically like air, jets and then like c- cars that we drive every single day and then down from there, like hybrids and everything else. But like, uh, we have to completely transform our our transportation system. It needs to get to zero emissions. We need to increase public transit. I ride the bus every day. And oh, I ride the train. Like, it's the best. I highly recommend it. You can read books. It's wonderful. Yep. Um but it's, I admit, I do that because it's convenient. And if it required me to transfer two, three times, I'm not sure that I would make that choice. Uh, so we need to expand the networks of our public transportation. Yes. Right now, Soon. Most, like we, we're in Delaware. We're talking about potentially um, expanding the bus lines to get there's – a, there's a kind of suburb that's had a, a boom – and a lot of people live in that suburb and commute up to Wilmington. So we're like, well, maybe if we put a bus line between Middletown and, and Wilmington, people will ride the bus. And I'm like, not if that bus has to sit in the same traffic they're going to sit in anyway. Not if it's going to take them longer. Like you need to get, you need to actually prioritize public transportation over the personal vehicle to, to make it better for people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that deals with how America, we don't have, even in places that have, I shouldn't say better, but more public transportation, it's never better. Like other, other countries, you look at countries like Japan and Korea, their, their systems are barely ever late. They're all, they're not really in service. I mean, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina and trains are out of service. Buses are out of service. I had a coworker who was late to work four times this week because her bus was late. Yeah. Um, oh, I have I mean, all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. And other, other countries look at it and they're like, wait, your buses are late that often. And it's like, it's a it's a problem and it's because we're so addicted to these cars and we always have been and yeah we need to change that because it's and killing I, would also say, I agree and i would also say particularly when it comes to buses there is a classism associated with a bus yes. that that deprioritizes the value of that bus and there's an assumption that like we don't have to worry about the riders of that bus and take care of them because they are not the people who are going to come knocking on our door as mayors and governors and whatever else, you know, demanding better service. Like, there is a, again, taking advantage of the disadvantage that happens when we look at those systems. And what I would much rather see is, again, funding for those services. Like, the reason that our buses are late and that they break down and our trains break down or they they just don't show up is because we fail to fund these things adequately. Because Very we true. don't prioritize the things that will actually make our lives better. And I guarantee you, if you go back and look at the legislation that dealt with the funding for these projects, you will find the people who voted for them have contributions on their records from auto micro companies, from oil companies, because mm. they want things to remain this way. Oh, yeah. I mean, down to like pedestrian laws. 
those were influenced by car companies. <laughs> like the, yeah. the concept of jaywalking became a crime because of the car companies. <laughs> and like not wanting their drivers to like be held responsible for the safety of pedestrians. Like yeah. it, the car is prioritized over everything in our society, like as far as transportation. And like until we start breaking that down and or at the very least transferring cars to run to run on something that's not a fossil fuel or and making sure that the electricity that's powering that car is not created from a fossil fuel. Like until that happens, I, I don't know that 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 again, it culturally has to shift. People need to recognize that, like getting in their car and driving 30 miles to work is part of the problem. And I don't like I really don't like putting climate change on the consumer. I think that mm. obviously corporations yes. and frankly, the military have contributed far more to uh, the crisis that we are in. Um, you know, ExxonMobil literally hiding the fact that it was happening before I was even born. But there are still like what we need is the things to work together. Like I need I need corporations to say, OK, we're actually going to invest in modernizing the power grid, changing the way the sources of power. Um, but that needs to be led by, frankly, the government. And then we need to demand that they make cars that are electric, that aren't fossil fuel driven. We need to demand that we our cities and our states build public transportation. Like, that's the only option forward. Because yeah. we're, I mean, you guys know, we're at a point of crisis. Like, that is partially why I'm running. Like, I see so many points of crisis around me, climate being one of them, wealth inequality being another, like, mass incarceration being another like there are so many points of that like if we go any further i just see us completely breaking down like climate is going to create more war it's going to create more resource scarcity among the, those of us that don't hold all of the resources at the top like it's it's going to create more health disparities and and more um illness so all of these things are interconnected and we have to recognize that like we need to start working on all of them and any step we take, like we have to just start moving. Like that's like, like with climate in particular, like we just have to start because every year we wait is, is we're worse off. And the, yeah. and it's only becoming, it, the problems are only perpetuating themselves. And I'm running against someone who thinks that carbon taxes are going to solve all problem. Like it's 1990. Oh, like literally. <laughs> like, these companies don't have enough money. No, mm -hmm. yeah, like, yeah, like, they're just gonna pay. It's just a, they'll pay it. They don't give a shit. <laughs> like, yeah. So, and you know, Chris Coons was, he just started the Bipartisan Climate Caucus. Have you heard about this? Good. Unfortunately, uh, yes. Yeah, so they started a, a Bipartisan Climate Caucus in which they will not push any legislation forward unless it is unanimously agreed upon oh within the caucus. Mm. I know, isn't it? It's so good. It's like you're literally structuring a system that will fail. <laughs> There's no way that happens. And anything that does come out of that unanimously, it's going to be trash. It's going to go nowhere. It's going to be carbon taxes or a, another bill that Chris Coons has put forward, which is basically just like, well, the problem is that we're not extending the tax credits that oil companies get to green companies. So if we extend the tax credits to green companies, that will spur their investment. Mm. Uh, that will really level the playing of oil. <laughs> yeah, like the technology already exists. Like we can do this. You, it's not gonna, it can't just be like we're relying on corporations to get it done though. It has to be like a cultural shift, an initiative yes. from, from, with all of us 
coming together and saying, we want to change the way we live and any company that doesn't come along with us, we will not do business with. Mm. Oh, it's power move. We'll just take control of them one day <laughs> and <laughs> shut them yeah. down. That also works. <laughs> that's, that's an idea I've had a couple times in the past. Yeah. Um, but you're right, though. It's a huge project. Absolutely. But that shouldn't be daunting. That should be exciting. Like, mm-hmm. why do we lack such imagination in our leadership? Like, yes. there's no reason. We should never be held back by, like, what our, I don't know, what, what, what we have today. And what they're actually held back by, though, is corporate donors. Like, oh, yeah. we know this. <laughs> you know, like, that's actually what's holding it back, is everyone is part of the same club yeah. at the top. Everyone's on a payroll. Exactly. And there's a club that everybody else is in, and they're all in cahoots with each other, and the rest of us are left to suffer. Yeah, that's why you see Chris Coons at uh, Joe Biden rallies. Yeah, oh, oh, well, oh God. Is, yeah, no, he's out campaigning for him. While I'm out running, you know, 24 shifts of, of canvassing between the new year and the su- first Sunday, which, that's amazing. Thank wow. you, team, and hey, respect, all our volunteers. That's awesome. Yeah, how about that? He's in Iowa campaigning for Joe Biden. And that's another reason that I kind of say like, well, why would you support this person? Because if Joe Biden becomes president, which is not what I hope happens, but if that happens, this person is clearly going to be jonesing for a job in his cabinet. Mm -hmm. So why would you vote for him anyway? Because (laughs) if that's the scenario, he's not going to be the person that you elect anyway. Someone else will be appointed to that seat. Like it's happened in our state so many times. Joe Biden will yet again choose our senator for us. Yeah, I follow a bunch of your uh, campaign people on Twitter, and I was looking at some of the tweets they were doing about the canvassing, and I got to say, it, it, very impressive uh, operation you got going on there. A lot of a lot of people are doing a lot of work out yeah, there. Yeah, even in like inclement weather and stuff. Oh yeah, it's been nasty. I mean, it's, it's December and January. We've had dozens of people out. Like honestly, I I'm glad you said that because really, I really commend the team that we have because we are ahead of our targets for where like the amount of canvases we're actually able to run. Like we didn't think we'd we'd be able to get downstate until like spring. And we already have people who are raising their hand to say, I'll do Dover, I'll do Sussex County, which is the county down by the beach, like kind of about an hour and a half away from Wilmington, our biggest city. So people are stepping up to like be involved with this. And it's been awesome. That's really, really awesome. That's great, yeah. Oh yeah. Because I can tell, I can tell you, I've been here 31 years. We have never had one person knock on our door. I mean, we're in a rural area. Yeah, we so live it's out different from nowhere. Vibe here, but it's just like campus is super important. Dude, I'm walking through Wilmington, the most <laughs> densely populated city in our state, knocking on people's doors, and they're like, "No one ever knocks on my door." And I'm like, "I know that's the problem. That's why I'm here. What's going on in your life?" And people are inviting us in. We're sitting in people's living rooms for 20 minutes, talking about their lives. And saying, and like they are so much more in line with our platform than our leadership would believe. Like our voters are so much more progressive than the leadership we have. Because when you talk to people about issues and you don't talk about, like you, you just literally talk about like what is going on in your life and how can we make that better? They, they support progressive policies. If we were to put these things on a ballot, I would assume they would pass because people recognize when things in their when when policies will better the situation of their life and they can vote that way but what is happening instead is we put up milk toast democrats who are never 
going to actually take a principled stance on something. And that's the only choice that we give people. We have not had a primary for this seat in I don't know how long. It was Joe Biden's seat for like 40 years. And then he became vice president. Another person was appointed to it for a year. There was a special election held in 2010. And then Chris Coons won that election. There was no primary challenge to Chris Coons in that election. He was chosen by Joe Biden to run. And then he won the election. And he has not been challenged since. So we aren't even giving people a choice. So when you actually go to people and say, we deserve better, we make we make the wealth of our country, like, and we deserve to, to actually have that wealth be delivered back to us in programs that make our lives better. And that's all we keep saying to people, like, we deserve this. This is not radical. This is not out there. These are things that we can absolutely have, and we need to fight for them together. And that's a promise I'm making to people. Like, I tell them straight up. I mean, I've had people say, like, well, you know, politicians always make promises. Like, how do I know you're actually going to do this? And I'm like, you're right. Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to play like, no, no, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to, like, tell you that just electing me gets this done. I'm not <laughs> that delusional. I'd love if that were true. But what I am saying to them is, I promise you I'm true to my values. I promise you this is what I believe in. I'm not taking any corporate money. And I promise you that I will actually use the power of my office to get to pull up the person behind me to look and say, who else can we get elected? What other seat can we flip from center to left so that we build that power? And then who what organizers can we boost? Who, who can we get on the ground to actually go and canvas around these issues so that voters start demanding it? Like, that's what you actually that's how you build power. It's not about just getting in the seat and trying to hold on to it for dear life. It's about actually using it for good. So uh, uh, to your plan is to become the Huey Long of Delaware. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I am for. I'm down for that. But yeah, I'm, that's I'm awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, all the stuff you said is, I mean, very in line with the stuff we talk about on this podcast. Because one thing, I mean, we have to, one thing we have to inspire, and one thing that I want our politicians that are running to inspire is worker solidarity and just power <laughs> among the people and the proletariat. Because so many people think that they don't have power because it's true, one person doesn't have power, but when there's... 99 95 99% of people working together i mean there's nothing they can't do i mean there's so many of us yes and that has been intentionally broken like for 40 years mm -hmm. that that concept of solidarity that concept of unions like all of that has been intentionally broken down and it's it's i think part of the reason we have a president trump and we have a right wing that we have now because i think it it broke solidarity and it gave it created demons for people and it gave people the ability to look at the person who's actually sitting in the shit next to them and say well you're the reason i'm in this rather than looking up and saying oh no the person who's got their fucking boot on my neck is the reason i'm in this so i really feel like if we can change that conversation and get back to this idea that like no if we stand together to demand things we we can get them that we can actually win back that power and we can actually lead from a place of we're all doing this together, not your government is something that rains down on you from high to actually make your life worse, which is how most people feel. And they wouldn't be wrong to feel that way either. No, yeah. it's totally true. I mean, everyone feels like, I don't know, I literally was talking to a woman at a door recently and we were talking about the platform and she was like, very passionate about it, very into it. 
And her mother walks by, her like older mother walks by. The woman was probably in her 80s. And she's like, yeah, and my social security just went down by $200. And it's like, yes, that's the problem. Like, yeah. and she just kept walking. And like, she just like yelled that at me and kept walking. But I'm like, yes, exactly. Because we see that, we see that our, and I say we, I'm being kind of not actually saying me, but like the people who are in power see cutting social security as a way to save money when we don't need to save money. It's just a way to break the spirit of people so that they are left struggling. And when you're struggling, you don't have time to go out and march. You don't have time to like stand up for the things you believe in because you're worried about how am I actually gonna take care of my sick kid? How am I going to get to this next shift? How, what does my shift even look? What does my schedule even look like next week? Because my boss doesn't even tell me until Friday when I'm working next week or whatever. It's all intentional. Some people can't even, some people can't even get off time to vote. So their silence just right there from the beginning. Exactly. We need to be fighting for like vote by mail, extending the days that you vote. Like voting is not the only. Yes, it should be a holiday. Like, I mean, and voting is not the only way you get shit done, Mm -hmm. but it is one of like right now. It feels like one of the few tools that we have, and even that is being like stolen from so many of us. Yeah. Yeah. You you were talking about the uh, multiple points of crisis around you. And, um, I mean, I, and I know most of the people on the podcast, me and Seth and Marcus are, uh, uh, somewhat aligned with Marxism and we see that this crisis could, we, we are afraid, I think that if we don't vote, if we don't use the, the electoral powers we have, these crises could go to an extreme area that we don't actually want to get to. And we're afraid of that. It's, it's a scary thought. Yeah. But so Climate many people, whatnot. yeah. But so many people are so dejected, and it's scary because like yes. so many people are giving up the power that they could have, and it again, I believe it's intentional. But that is part of what our campaign is trying to do is to like re-engage the people who have said like it literally does not matter who sits in that seat because no matter what, they could be Democrat, they could be Republican, they could be whatever they want to claim themselves to be. But no matter what, my life doesn't get any better. And I completely understand why that person doesn't see why trying to figure out how to get off on election day seems worth it. How, what, like giving potentially giving up wages to go cast a ballot when you don't actually feel like it's going to make any difference. Like I do not, I don't blame that person for feeling that way because that has been done to them intentionally. Yeah, and that's a great point. It happens to people all the time. People think that because the system hasn't worked out for them in the past, that no system's ever going to work out. And they just feel de- dejected and they just give up. And it's something that's imposed on us by capitalism. Yeah, and what what would like what reason would they have to believe otherwise? You know, yeah. like they've this has all been done like systematically for a generation or more to keep the masses. <laughs> down in a place of struggle so that they can't claim the power back um so i think marcus you had an interesting question i wanted to come back to um yes go ahead um well i was on your website jess uh just for delaware.com which is very very well made by the way thank you That's my that's my profession. So, oh, oh, wait, are you you really you're a web developer? Uh, I'm a strategist for web development. 
Okay, I'm I'm a developer, so that's cool. Oh, nice. Oh. Um, but you have in one of your core policies reparations for slavery and genocide of indigenous people. And I was curious as to like how would you quantify those uh reparations? That's a great question. I think that there it is important to I think some of the programs that I'm putting forward in part are a way to undo some of the disproportionate effects that happen to particularly black and brown and indigenous people in our in our country. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at something like forgiving student loan debt, like black women actually hold most of the student or I think their student loan debt is like disproportionately high. So that is something that actually helps um, black women more than it helps any other group. So I think there's that part of like universal te- programs that aren't means tested actually will disproportionately help for once groups that have otherwise been harmed. So I think that's in part, that part is really important to me because that will, because we have so negatively affected those groups um, through the way that we have run our country so far, um, they will make a bigger difference for them. Okay. I also think that when I look at things like um, legalization of marijuana, Mm-hmm. And expunge, expunging all records. Yes, I think oh, one yes. of the ways. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like, there's no question to that for me. But it to me, it doesn't end there because I think one of the other ways that you make sure that you take care of the people that you have harmed is that you give them the first chance. So mm-hmm. you don't let a bunch of already wealthy, already privileged people be the first people to make a weed business. You Absolutely. offer that to the people who have already been harmed. Uh-huh. I think yeah. that we have to look at, I think climate is another place where we have to make sure that we take care of black and brown and indigenous people first. Um, indigenous people, frankly, protect us from even more climate damage than we would otherwise be suffering from because they protect so much land and fight to protect so much land. Um, but in a state like Delaware, we have seen that blacker neighborhoods are already faring worse when it comes to climate. So, and particular, and pollution, that's another thing. Our state has a really bad history of pollution. So black people were pushed into certain neighborhoods and told like, you can only buy, buy, you can't buy homes in these other neighborhoods. Here's the neighborhoods that are uh, for you. And those neighborhoods are the ones that flood the most. They're the ones that have the most brown fields. They're the ones that have the highest cancer rates. They're the ones that have the most asthma because they're sitting right next to a chemical plant. <clears throat> so I think the other thing you do is you look at the people that are in those neighborhoods and you, again, you give them the first shot to fix their oil or fix their land, fix their air, fix their water because they're the suffering the most and they have historically suffered the most. <clears throat> so I think it, those are some of the ways that I would, I would look at fixing the damage that we've done to those communities. Wow. All right. It's honestly just a, a thing that we're we're amazed to see it on a platform. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm proud of our platform. I mean, I think it's funny because we we put this together before we launched the campaign, and I, even still, there's like there's there's kind of more that I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're we're in a better place now. We're gonna start putting out like 
policy papers and things that explain some of this stuff more, which is more than you will see from like any other campaign in our state. Like most people are just running on like, I care about being a good neighbor in Delaware. And like we mm-hmm. instead are trying to put forward like a really clear vision of what we think the country should be and what we think the, the country should offer us. Um, and being really specific about like actual policies we s- should support, not just like Trump has been bad to immigrants. Like we recognize it didn't start in 2017. And we recognize that there's a history of harming immigrants, harming black and brown communities. And we're trying to put forward actual policies that will not just say like, we need to undo Trump-isms, but we actually need to completely change the way that we we look at the way we have operated for a generation or more. Yeah, kind of like rewiring the way we think about politics and the systems that uh, have been put in place is very important to starting the kind of revolution we would like to. Yeah, and we can't just be the party of like, we're nicer to people like we have to put like yeah. a real vision forward like it it can't just be like we won't be so cruel yeah we go high it's kind of the it's like they say it and it's a good thing to say but i'm like but what are we doing with that and is there anything farther you can't just say i'm the bigger person because the bigger person can still get their hand slapped out of somebody's face i mean exactly exactly yeah, I've been to Chris Coons' website, and it is very much less impressive than yours. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, on, it's web 1.0, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Some time.b nonsense. It's true. I mean, I really believe that, like, yeah. if, like I said, we have talked to a lot of voters already. We have a goal of, of knocking the most doors in the state um, that's ever been knocked in, in the history of our cam- of campaigns. So, like, we are really prioritizing getting in front of voters. But, like, I genuinely believe that, like, the vision that we have for the country is more aligned with voters than Chris Coon's vision for the country. He believes in haves and have-nots. He believes in scarcity and that some people are just going to be worse off than others. And we can try to make it a little bit better. But, God, we don't want to blow up the budget trying to make it better for people. And our vision is entirely counter to that. And when we talk to people... And the things that come up the most when I'm knocking on people's doors are healthcare and environment. And what I would roll up is as like overall justice, like criminal, economic, and climate justice. Um, and like people have the language now to ask for Medicare for all. Like you're, you're, we are not educating people on what that is. And I think we have the national conversation to thank for that. But like, People are literally saying like, no, my, I, I have insurance and it's quote unquote good insurance, but my deductible just went up to, you know, $6,000 this year. So yeah. it's become completely unaffordable. And, and some people are saying, I don't have insurance, so I don't go to the doctor or I have insurance, but they told me that I can no longer get the type of insulin that I used to use. So I'm trying to use this other one and it's not as good. Like people are recognizing, like, I can ask for something different here. Yeah, you shouldn't have to compromise over uh, a chemical that you have to put in your body to stay alive. There's no reason to compromise over that, ever. Absolutely. I talked to a guy the other day um, who has a disorder where he can have seizures. And the medicine, it's not funny, but it's it's comical when I say what I'm going to say. The medicine that will keep him alive and prevents him from having seizures costs him $10,000 a month. 
Oh my a god. Month? Yeah. <laughs> a month. So he has to go through a grant writing process to get a grant to pay for that medication. For yeah. him to just stay on earth alive. <laughs> like and I, I'm I'm only laughing because it's so ridiculous. It's not funny. That's fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. But like yeah. in what world if you were dreaming up a world, would you be like, yep, yep, okay, 10 grand for just to stay alive every month makes total sense. Yeah. Like, none of this makes sense. And people are really getting to a point where they can say like, I'm for Medicare for all. And they, we don't have to explain it to them. Like we're at the door and they're like, this is what we need. Um, Delaware, awesome. when it comes like environment, we were talking about climate change before and like talking about how our state is so polluted, but we are also the lowest lying state in the country and we are sinking. So not only are we going to be affected by like rising sea levels and higher temperatures, but our, we are like literally sinking. We have already had problems with um, salination. So fresh water getting infringed upon by ocean water, killing farms, like farmers are losing farmland every year. It's, in, it's um, infiltrating drinking water and our beaches are just like washing away. And like every year, like there's more flooding. Uh, we have, parts of the state where it's not even raining it's just a king tide but roads are underwater so people are recognizing like we are going to be on the front lines of this and we need to stop it in its tracks like we're not going to undo what's already done but like we absolutely have to stop it in our tracks so again i have people at the door being like the thing i'm most concerned about is climate change yeah and they're saying my grandkids have asthma they're like my grandkids have asthma like all of a sudden they got asthma and it's because of air pollution. And, and when the temperatures get wor- higher, like air pollution and asthma are only going to get worse. So we're going to have an entire generation of kids who like literally can't breathe. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's becoming be fall. It's becoming normalized to see signs in cities that are like, oh, the, the air is polluted here. So you have to be careful. It's like, oh, okay, I'll try to breathe less, I guess. I don't know what you mm-hmm. want. Exactly. And like that can't be normalized. <laughs> like we have to yeah. like recognize that like no we can't accept this um and yeah and then the other things i hear are really about this like intersection of education and economic justice and criminal justice um delaware has a really high uh, incarceration rate it's higher than the u.s average and i'm sure you guys know that the u.s is higher than every other country yeah so as if delaware was a country it would be worse than every other country it wouldn't be the worst but it would be up there um and it's also not shockingly uh disproportionately affects black people so our population is about 20 percent black and our prison population is about 60 percent black Jeez. yeah and mm. I've, so I've been i've been following you on twitter and noticing some of the stuff you're talking about and one thing that hits home really hard for a lot of us on this podcast is I hope I'm saying his name right, but Ricardo Hilton yeah, um, is a man who was apparently murdered by the police, apparently very close to where you live, and it's kind of been swept under the rug. Yeah, we haven't and heard anything. So there you've were ta- two news stories about it and haven't heard anything since September. The police department basically was like, we're going to do an investigation, but it's not an independent investigation. And we there's been nothing. And yeah, there's and conflicting reports. On- of like, he had a gun, he was firing a gun, he didn't have a gun. Like, no clear story of what actually happened. And there's nobody, there's not no, I won't say there's nobody, but like, there's not a 
mass movement to demand answers from the city about it. Yeah, and you've kind of gone on one of your more like one of your uh, more powerful tweets I've seen recently is um, kind of talking about how you would like to deal with um, the police and how to um, kind of put power in the hands of the people. If you want to expand on that a little bit, that'd be awesome. Yeah, no, I, I mean, criminal justice and mass incarceration as a whole are problems we absolutely have to face head on immediately. And I think part of that effort has to be um, what I would consider demilitarization of the police. I think that police in most cities and even towns are acting as like an occupying force. And that is really a post 9-11 thing. You know, we started giving them military equipment and that has propagated an attitude throughout policing that I think we are seeing the effects of with brutality. So I believe that we need to, that equipment needs to get out of our local police departments at the very least. And I really need, I would think we need to look at like, what is the mission of our police forces? What are they there to do? And what are we measuring? Because I kind of, we said this before, like if you're measuring the wrong thing, you're going to get the wrong results. So is it about like, oh, we made this many arrests? Because that's what you then you're gonna like roll up on teen kids and arrest them for like bullshit charges. Is it we kept people safe? Well, okay, then maybe you're gonna try to figure out what crime might happen before it actually happens and you're gonna roll up on people based on racial profiling. So, like, that to me is really important to figure out like what do the police actually exist to do and what are they allowed to do and what are they not allowed to do? And I would argue like use of force has become so commonplace that. I'm not sure that these these forces these police forces should be armed. Like I think we really need to look at like what is giving someone a gun or an MRAP due to what they believe their job is. Yes. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. Yeah. You're you're honestly one of the one of the folks I've heard say that. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is like so refreshing. <laughs> well, I'm saying this like and you know it's there's a, I will say my neighborhood and, you know, to some people that means like the four blocks in one direction and four blocks in another direction. But to me, mm-hmm. it's like much broader than that. And there is this weird kind of dividing line where I live. It's a street that's, you know, it's a little bit wider. So it's like, oh, well, the other side of it isn't as nice as our neighborhood type shit mm-hmm. goes on. But like, I would say these shootings happened in my neighborhood. They have been within 10 blocks of my house. And, and Ricardo's one example. And he unfortunately was killed by the police but there was another example even earlier in the year when an 18 year old kid allegedly stole a car and cops were called cops found that car later on rolled up on it and the kids like ran out of the car again there may or may not have been a gun always it's always very unclear but the police um shot this 18 year old kid four times in the chest and he survived that Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) Which is remarkable. But then a statement was taken from him while he was in the hospital. And there's conflicting reports on, like, what medication he was on. Then he was released on bail. But part of his bail term was that he couldn't fraternize with other criminals. Well, his brother got busted for, like, some small charge. And now he's living with a criminal. So his bail was rescinded. And now he's sitting in jail. Wow. Yeah. So, like, these are the things that are happening. And it's, like, I understand that those are the laws and those are the rules and that's how it works. But, like, 
let's look at actually making it work differently. We are lucky. We actually have a pretty progressive um, AG in our state. Like we actually have done some criminal justice reform things in the last year or two that are impressive, but it's not enough. And we have to keep going. And we have to really look at like, what, what did these, what does this department exist to do? And what are we willing to accept it does? And what are we willing to raise our hand and say, this is unacceptable. And I would argue that the way that the Wilmington Police Department has been run has been unacceptable. Yeah, and I think that's a sentiment that you find in most cities. People will probably agree that their police department is ran poorly. I, I agree that with that in Charlotte. I think the Charlotte Police Department is also very racist and just abuses their power all the time. And I think, I mean, that's how it is. I'm sure Atlanta is the same way. I'm sure I mean, every every city has a problem, and it's becoming more and more prevalent and more obvious to people, and I think that's a good thing. And yeah, I think so, too. I, I mean, I, I think it's fucking horrible that it has to take, like, black men getting shot in the street and black women getting shot in the street by cops yeah. to, like, make us pay attention to that. And we shouldn't forgive ourselves for that. But I am glad the conversation's changing. But these are things, like, I see it all the time. Like I said, I ride the bus. I've seen cops harass the guy standing next to me at the bus stop. And I, and then I turn to the cop and I'm like, what are you, why are you bothering him? And he's like, oh, I thought he was bothering you. And I'm like, no, I'm waiting for a bus. Like, you know, like st stuff like that. And, you know, there's this real focus to get more diversity on the police force. But like that doesn't fix the problem when it's like it's systemic and it's endemic to the actual yeah. way that policing is done. Oh, absolutely. We, we saw it in the past with uh, Irish people being allowed into the police force. It didn't make the police less, you know, uh, um, racist towards Irish people and just made Irish cops beat up Irish people. And it's the same way now. It's, it's not going to change things. You have to change the system and not the people who are perpetuating the system. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that like the, it's interesting because you know you're in Delaware and I, I'm in Georgia. Me and Marcus are in Georgia and Seth is in uh, North Carolina, and we're very far apart geographically speaking. But it's so interesting to find out that like our issues are pretty much the same no matter where you go. We all have the same common problems, and it's very heartening to know that there are people out there who are trying to solve those problems, and uh, that we all we're all in the same boat, and we need to realize that. And I think more people are. That is so important. Like, I think from whether it's like a big issue, like police brutality, or whether it's a small issue, like I feel completely stepped on by my boss. And that's not really small, but people can feel like it's small. I think yeah. it's so important for people to recognize that like, we're all like suffering through the same things. Yeah. Because like, I think that was one thing that like me too really helped with, with like women and sexual assault. Like, yes, it, it made it less quiet. And it's, it's fucking horrible that women have to constantly like trot out their trauma to like make people recognize that this goes on. But it did make women realize like, oh shit, like this is literally happening to every single one of my friends. And I think like we need to do the same thing when it comes to like the way that we're all living and we have to find a way to like get past the idea of shame that exists in struggle. Like I was on unemployment after so i graduated like two years before the recession mm. and i got out in the world and i'm like i'm gonna make something of myself and like i am very lucky i did not graduate with student loan debt um but i struggled out of school even without that 
to like find a job. I struggled to find a full-time job. When I did, then the recession hit and I just completely lost it. I had to move home. I had like no job. I was able to get like a part-time retail job two years out of college, making like $10 an hour, no health insurance. I was able to get into the corporate office of that retail company. Again, I'm like, okay, I'm back on track. Like I've got an okay salary. I still really can't afford rent. I still have to live at home, but I can like afford my bills. I have health insurance. I have these things that like make me feel more stable. Well, a year, another year goes by and like, you're still not really out of the recession and I get laid off. So I went on unemployment after that, but like I had people who were close to me who definitely tried to shame me for that, who tried to be like, oh, like, is that like, that's not for you. Like, that's not for people like you. Like, it was sort of the implication. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. and that's the thing we have to figure out how to get past. Like, how do we get past shaming people for needing help? Because we should be, we should be asking people who needs help and asking them to raise their hand so that we can give it to them. I think a lot of people are insecure because they are vulnerable and they don't want to show it to people. So they lash out like that and attack and, and shame you for being vulnerable and, and, and being publicly vulnerable and it, we, we got to really let people know that we all have these same problems and it's, there's no shame in it. It's, it's, it's a systemic thing. It's all of us. Yeah. yeah. And I think you're right that we're getting there with someone like policing. I think we're getting there with healthcare. Like the more people share their stories, the more people recognize like, Oh yeah, I've had that same problem or you're right. Like maybe we don't have to just take this. So I think there's work that, is being done right now. Um, I would actually credit like a lot of like the way that Bernie Sanders seems to like handle town halls and then actually push that content out to people and share it has like yeah. done some of that work to be like, Oh, like literally that guy looks like me, talks like me, has the same problems that I do. And we have to find ways to like find that, like rebuild that connective tissue between people because we, because we've lost it and we've had systemic underfunding of public works and public yes. spaces and public projects that was what supported that so when we when we underfund schools and when we underfund community centers and parks and all these places where people can actually like have their lives collide with each other we become so um isolated and i think that's like a real problem with our culture right now is that people feel so disconnected from one another and like i'm not saying that's the like i know that's not like the only solution to like racism or like bigotry. But I think if we can, if we can find a way to make people recognize that like, this isn't a left or right fight. This isn't like, a, this should not be at least a racial fight. This is a top versus bottom fight. And we have to get all on the same team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely important to re have solidarity and recognize we're all the same in a lot of the way in a lot of the same ways. Yeah. We all have our own problems. We have a lot of those problems in common, and we can only solve them together. Yeah, exactly. We're at an inflection point in society where a lot of these issues, like like you mentioned, like police brutality and healthcare and climate, are all kind of coming up at the same time. Where it's it's a very good time for candidates like yourself and like Bernie Sanders, all these people, to really attack these issues and not to compromise and really make change and it's very possible and i just i, I just really hope that um it works out for everybody because the voters this is something voters need this is something voters can vote for and really really help themselves it's awesome and giving people something to believe in is going to be better than just saying 
like you're fighting for status quo any day. Yes. That is going to be our path forward. And I think where we have watched ourselves fail over and over again is by failing to give people something to believe in. So um, for listeners out there who, who are checking this out, um, how can they help your campaign in, or in general? How do you think that they can participate to help out? Oh my God, there are so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, they can always donate money. We are not taking any corporate PAC money. We Hell yeah. are mm-hmm. like only raising money from individual people. Um, we had a really awesome first I'll say first quarter, but really it was six weeks and two of those weeks were holiday weeks. And we raised almost $55,000 in that time. Wow. So we feel really strong about our start. So there's, there's strength and power behind this campaign. That was, that money was from over 1100 donations. So like there's people who have raised their hand to be like, I believe in this. I support this. So we will always take donations. Any dollar amount does make a difference for us. Like we are not, we are, we are taking that money and we are translating it to knocking on doors. We are translating it to printing out literature that we can leave at doors. Like everything is being used really effectively on this campaign. We are targeting um, being able to hire organizers to actually be paid canvassers out for us on this campaign. So that's like what your money will actually go to. It will go to bringing this message to voters. It won't go to, you know, billboards or like other ineffectual spending. We also have um, a dialer set up. So if you go to our website that you mentioned before, justfordelaware.com, that's where you can donate, but there's also a page there for um, volunteering. You can sign up to, um, if you're out of state, make phone calls or make texts. And we do remote phone banks uh, pretty much twice a week at this point. So Thursday evenings, Friday evenings, you can hop on the dialer for a few hours, make phone calls. We've got it. It's all set up. You can do it through your computer. There's a script. It walks you through it. It's not scary. Um, And if you're (laughs) local or you want to be local, we'd love to have people come out and canvas. Like I hadn't canvassed really much before this campaign. I had only ever really uh, made phone calls and done texting. But um, I canvassed for a few uh, candidates local here. Um, that are really important to our state and our state legislator before I launched my campaign. And now I've obviously been canvassing for my campaign. And like I said, it's, we are having amazing conversations with people and like making them feel like they have a candidate to believe in. I had a woman say to me at the door the other day, like, oh, you're such a breath of fresh air. And it's like, <laughs> we are getting that response over and over. And like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's invigorating to me. It makes me feel like, we're doing something right here. People believe in this. They want this and they've been waiting for it. So like knocking doors has been amazing. So those are some kind of key ways you can get involved. Okay. That's great. Well, we, we really hope to see this, uh, see this through. And we, I mean, I personally believe that you'll be future Senator. Yes, absolutely. Agree. (laughs) And then when you're on, when you're on CNN, Make it happen. No, exactly. I'm going to go on CNN because no, no. I talk to my voters. Okay. <laughs> yes. All awesome. right, man. <laughs> I'll pull up your Twitter and say, see, I, this person right here, I'll talk to her. Yeah. Big. Yeah. <laughs> I was an OG follower, I hope. Yeah. She was on the Illennials <laughs> podcast all those years ago. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, get man. me on the ground floor. We're, all, we're at like, you know, 5,000 followers or so. If you get on the ground floor now, like, that's real clout. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're excited. 
Um, well, yeah, I think this has been a good conversation, and we're yeah. we're so so happy to have talked to you. I know this has been so refreshing. I don't think any of us have ever interviewed somebody before, really, especially not of this status. And mm-hmm. you made it very easy. It was it was awesome talking to you, and yeah, this was very refreshing. Awesome. I appreciate your time, guys. This has been great. Oh yeah, no thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that was our interview with uh, Jess Scarane, running for senator in Delaware, as you heard. Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Um, we're going to end the way we always end it with our outro. Uh, this was the Linux Podcast. I'm Smith. You can find me on Twitter at MCSurf. I'm Seth. You can find me on Twitter, officially at Seth, and at on Letterboxd at Kanazeras, K-Y-N-A-Z-E-R-A-S. And you can find me, Marcus, on Instagram at Mr. Beaches. And? And I do the art for this podcast. <laughs> Our theme song was done by Ben Powell. He's been a guest on the show before. He's nowhere near as good as a guest as the one we just had. So, <laughs> if, if you're listening, fuck you. Uh, he has his own podcast called Southern Smackdown, where they talk about wrestling and they're both from the South. So if that sounds interesting, go check it out. We have stopped trying to solve our problems. We're trying to outlive them. Uh, fuck Kevin Durant. Tom Brady, the movie first reformed, and Delaware Senator Chris Coons. Yeah. <laughs> Kick him in the coons. Yeah. <laughs> and um, if you want to support uh, Jessica Rain, don't forget her website is justfordelaware.com. Hell yeah. Uh, I did it backwards. I fucked up, but you can't. Uh, you can you can lead a horse water, but you can't make it under it. And from New Orleans to New York, that's the Illinois Podcast, baby. We're out. We're out. Peace.